They, they want to get a mortgage that works for them, uh, that is safe, that is affordable, that is transparent, that is clear, uh, and that is meeting their specific needs. The Latino population is young, ambitious, and growing larger every year in the U.S. Over the next 20 years, many will reach home buying age, and the Urban Institute expects 70% of net new homeowners to be Latino by 2040. Plus, 8 million Latinos have the credit score and DTI to be mortgage-ready right now. But many do not fit the mold of the typical borrower. They need lenders and LOs with expertise and creativity in finding them the best deal for their financing. Sam Kenny, senior housing policy analyst from Unidos US, is here to share insights on the growing Latino community, what they need, and how lenders can get their business right now. Thank you, Sam Kenny, for joining us on the podcast to talk about Unidos US, your nonprofit's mission to expand home ownership among Latinos as they are soon to be the biggest demographic of first-time buyers in America. But first, let's get to know you and what Unidos US is all about. Wonderful. Thank you, Katie. Well, it's really great to be here. Uh, So my name is Sam Kenny. I'm a senior housing policy analyst at Unidos US. Uh, So Unidos US, we are the the nation's largest Hispanic civil rights and advocacy organization. Uh, We conduct research we support advocacy and we uh, run programs on uh, areas like health, education, immigration, workforce development, and of course, housing uh, for the Latino community at both the national and the state level. Uh, so at Unidos, we have an affiliate organization uh, network of about 300 community-based organizations, uh, as well as staff in four key states. So we work Uh, across the country, across a range of issues uh, supporting the Latino community. And uh, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you today is that we uh, have recently launched uh, a home ownership initiative. It's called the Home Ownership Means Equity Campaign. And the goal is to transform the economic trajectory of the Latino community through home ownership. So we have uh, we're doing policy work, we're doing communications work, research work, and of course, we're very connected to our uh, housing counseling network uh, that we have at Unidos as well. Uh, so we're really laser focused over the next several years with an end goal of 2030 uh, to increase the number of Latino homeowners by about 4 million. So 4 million sounds like an ambitious goal. May I ask what personally drew you towards Unidos US and towards this mission of increasing Latino homeownership? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been working in housing uh, for a while now. Uh, prior to joining Unidos US, I worked for the State Housing Finance Agency in Oregon, uh, where I was very connected with our housing stabilization programs. Uh, and what drew me to be involved with Unidos is that in order to make progress in housing, the, the state, the local and the federal levels really need to be rowing in the same direction. And I can uh, scarcely think of an organization that both has a constituency and a demographic that's so important to housing, as well as areas for impact with those local organizations, our key states, and advocacy at the federal level. Uh, so it's really a fantastic opportunity to be involved in housing work. Uh, and then, you know, why housing? Well, housing really is a cornerstone uh, for uh, so many American families. Uh, where you live affects uh, your educational outcomes, your uh your lifestyle outcomes, your health, uh, where you're able to go to school, um, where you're able to recreate. It's so important in so many facets that being able to support work in the home ownership sector uh, is just really important to me. 
So over the next 20 years, the Urban Institute forecasts that Latinos will be 70% of net new homeowners. Can you explain what is actually driving that growth? Yeah, absolutely. It, that's a pretty eye-catching number, right? That's a pretty eye-catching number uh, in the homeownership in the mortgage industry. 70% of net new homeowners over the next 20 years, you know, we're talking a significant impact here. So uh, I really think there's there's three primary factors that are driving this growth. Uh, and the first is is demographic trends. Uh, so in uh, by way of contrast, in 2000, there was about 35 million Latinos in the country, uh, accounting for about 12% of the population. And now in 2022, or in 2022, the data uh, show that there are about 64 million Latinos in the United States, uh, and that was about 19% of the population. So over the course of only two decades, pretty significant increase in both the, uh, the, the net number of Latinos and as a proportion of the country. And so generally speaking, when we're thinking about uh, impact on an industry, uh, the underlying demographics and the numbers matter a lot. Now, we know there's disparities in home ownership, so we don't necessarily think this translates one to one uh, because there's been historic uh, exclusion of Latinos in the home ownership market. Yet we think, you know, even just with increasing populations, we would expect the number of Latinos to grow. Uh, the, the second factor is the age of that demographic. So not only is the Latino graphic demographic growing in size, uh, the Latino population also skews younger on average than the rest of the population. So uh, on average, Latinos are about 30 years old uh, compared to about 39 years old for everybody in the United States across all racial uh, and ethnic demographics and compared to about 44 uh, years old for whites. And so what that means for the home ownership market is that the younger demographic is at a stage in their life when they're sort of transitioning into home ownership. Even if they're transitioning into renting by themselves, they're then likely to be in that system longer and be, a, be you know, more likely to be that next homeowner over time. So we not only have a demographic that's very large, we also have a demographic that on average is pretty young thinking about getting into that home ownership stage. Uh, and then the third factor is the cultural values. Uh, so at Unidos, we conduct a lot of research. We work with our affiliate network and we hear consistently and we see in surveys that there is an incredibly strong cultural value and attachment to the idea of homeownership. This isn't entirely unique to the Latino community. There's a lot of people in the United States. Homeownership is a part of the American dream. Uh, but on average, we see that Latino families who are renting today desire at a very high rate to become homeowners tomorrow. Uh, and so it's really the combination of these three. A lot of people, a lot of uh, Latino families in, in more or less the right time to be first time home buyers who really want to be homeowners that are going to drive this change over the next two decades. So this wave of new home buyers coming into the market is an incredible opportunity for the mortgage industry. There are rumors of a market rebound coming in 2024, 2025. But it'd be great if originators educated themselves on Latino homebuyers while we're still in a low origination environment and they have time to strategize business. What can the industry do to better prepare for this coming wave and capture all the business they can? Generally, what do they need to know about Latino homebuyers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any way you slice it, the Latino demographic, e even in a, in a tough housing market today, you know, there's not going to be a tough housing market to tomorrow or the next day or, you know, in a couple of years. We really anticipate that at some point in time uh, that that group of young Latinos is going to transition into home ownership. And like you said, this is an incredible opportunity for the mortgage market. And so I think when thinking about 
what they can do to meet the needs of the Latino community is really going to be about uh, who can adapt, who can be creative, who can be innovative in the next couple of decades to, to meet the needs uh, of this community. And, you know, as we work with our affiliate network, as we think about um, uh, housing counseling and supporting the next generation of homeowners, there's a few things that come to mind in particular with respect to the mortgage market. Uh, so the first is really comprehensive market research and forecasting. So I think the, the mortgage industry as a whole is very good at this, uh, but we just sort of reiterate the fact that, yes, you know, we have these high level numbers that 70 percent over the next two decades, uh, but the Latino community is very diverse. Uh, they live in different regions of the country. Uh, you know, a family who might be of Cuban descent in Miami might have different needs and preferences than a uh, family of Mexican descent in Southern California, for example. So really understanding your local market, uh, who your families are and what their cultural needs are is going to be a big part of that. Uh, the second then, sort of that next step is thinking about product innovation and adaptation. Okay, so you know who your market is, you know, uh, you know, the age ranges, they're coming up, uh, the, the, the more specifics about that demographic. Um, but what are their needs in this, in the market? And I think we'll have a chance to talk about this even more, uh, as we get into the conversation today. But there are going to be a few traits that are pretty general across the Latino community that can benefit from some innovation and adaptation. And uh, as we see in data, historically, on average, Latinos are less likely to receive mortgage loans, even when they're potentially mortgage ready. And so it's uh, important to think and look at your data and say, how, how can I meet the needs of this community? Um, another aspect is uh, industry diversification. So understanding that as the community transitions to a larger portion of the population, and as so many young homeowners are transitioning to homeownership, uh, it's going to be important that they're not only a part of uh, that transition on the homeownership side, but also on the professional side, on the mortgage industry side. And I think this is an opportunity for uh, industry leaders now to look at the community and see a lot of potential, see a lot of housing experts uh, and invite them in. Uh, and then uh, another one is education and outreach. So really understanding that uh, young home buyers generally, uh, they need education, they need outreach, they need support. Home buying can be a complicated process. It can be scary the first time that you do it. Uh, and there's a lot of information to learn. Some of these barriers that exist for everybody can be amplified for the Latino community uh, based on language access uh, and or a lack of uh, uh, specific and outreach and education. So there is a very robust housing counseling network uh, in the country, um, but there's not as many culturally specific housing counseling agencies. Unidos US, we actually have one of the largest uh, networks in the country of about 50 housing counseling agencies, but really understanding who is in your community, how can they talk to the young Latino home buyers will be really important. Um, and then the last thing I would say about what the mortgage industry can do as we look at this opportunity coming forward in the next couple of decades uh, is around partnership partnership and re uh, relationship development. So kind of putting those last two together, that industry diversification and education and outreach, what are you doing in your community to establish those partnerships, to think about what an inclusive marketing technique would look like and really meeting the needs of those younger um, uh, Latino homeowners. So it says in your fact sheet that Freddie Mac estimates there are nearly 8 million mortgage-ready Latinos nationwide. So for rent, for lenders and originators, that sounds like 8 million people they can add to their pipeline right now. But as you mentioned before, there are some barriers preventing them from getting a loan application approval or finding a home. 
I'm guessing one of those barriers may be the lack of education they receive from lenders and LOs about the programs available to them. But I'll let you dive more into that topic and kind of discuss the multiple barriers getting in the way of homeownership. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is such an eye-grabbing number. It's like 8 million mortgage-ready Latinos, according to Freddie Mac. I think right now there's approximately 8 million Latino homeowners across the country. So, you know, if every mortgage-ready Latino were to become a homeowner, we would double the number of homeowners. Obviously, that's that's too simple of math. There's a lot of things that are going on there. But I think the opportunity, again, just continues to present itself. And so, like, what is going on here? What's underneath these numbers? Uh, so I think at the start of the conversation, it's helpful to define what mortgage ready is. Uh, so Freddie Mac is, they're very specific about this. They say that mortgage ready, uh, is a group of potential future borrowers that are 45 or younger. They have a credit score that is equal to 661, uh, or higher. They have a debt to income ratio that's at 25% or less. No foreclosures in the last seven years and no severe delinquencies. So they're, they're saying this specific criteria we're estimating that there's 8 million people in the community that hit, that check those boxes. Um, but obviously that is not a sufficient condition to get a mortgage, right? Because not all of these people are moving into homeownership. Uh, so when thinking about what the key barriers are for these folks in particular, I think what is not in the definition is as important as what is in the definition. So the first uh, primary barrier that we hear from the community is a lack of savings for down payment. Uh, that this mortgage-ready definition doesn't say that you necessarily have that down payment ready to go. A home opens up in your community that you can make the move to get the mortgage uh, that you need. Uh, you're prevented from that uh, lack of down payment. And, you know, down payments are huge these days. Uh, I think from 2019 to 2023, on average across the country, home prices increased somewhere around 40%, which is just uh, pretty, pretty stunning. Uh, and I think average home price across the country is around $400,000 these days. So, you know, if you were to take out a 20% down payment on a $400,000 house, you're looking at like $80,000. Uh, you know, obviously folks in the mortgage industry know that you don't have to have a 20% down payment, but you know, 5% of $400,000 is a lot. Uh, and this only gets worse as you look at California, as you look at the East Coast, as you look at Florida, where a lot of Latinos live. So you have a population who on average has lower incomes, lower savings, living in high cost areas, that down payment is just a huge barrier. So I think it's exciting for the mortgage market, right? Because there's a lot of credit worthy individuals out there with good credit profiles. Um, so we should think hard about how to, how to help them with that down payment. Um, so that's kind of the first one. Uh, the second one I would say is uh, you know, pretty broad as well, but related to the market is that there simply aren't enough starter homes. So as we talked about at the beginning, uh, one of the key things driving, one of the key factors driving Latino growth and homeownership is their age. But their age also generally puts a lot of them into that first time home buyer category. So they're aging into their first home buying experience. They're not buying their second home or their third home on average. Uh, and over the last two decades, there has been pretty dramatic under construction of homes, basically since the initial housing crash in 2006, 7 and 8. And even before then, most of the houses being built were very, very big. They weren't sort of meeting the needs of these starter home uh, families. So you couple that with not enough starter homes, extremely high prices, lack of down payment. You're starting to see a picture of, hey, folks, folks, you know, they got a pretty solid financial situ situation behind them, but they're having a hard time getting over these barriers. And then the third one is that having underlying credit profile that Freddie Mac describes and actually getting credit aren't the same things. And I think this goes to a little bit about what you were talking about as well. 
is that there's a lot of Latino families who have these characteristics, um, but whether it is a lack of institutional knowledge, whether it is a lack of educational opportunities, or probably most specifically, a lack of culturally specific services uh, meeting their particular needs, they're going to struggle or they are struggling to get that access to credit uh, at, to the same degree that other people are in the community. Um, another aspect of this is that over the last couple of years, the, the housing market's been incredibly tight and competitive. So if you're coming in mortgage ready with a credit score of 670, DTI of 20, uh, you know, you're, you're mortgage ready, but you're going to have a hard time competing in a market where somebody has an 800 credit score and they're simply out enough homes. So there's a lot of interrelated factors between why, uh, these uh, individuals aren't necessarily able to transition into home ownership, but I still think it is, uh, hopeful that there are this many who have such a strong credit profile. Absolutely. And some of those hurdles are the same as what your typical first-time buyer is facing in this market. But data from home mor- the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act shows that Latinos have higher loan denial rates and higher interest rates when they are approved compared to white borrowers, even when controlling for credit score, loan-to-value, and debt-to-income ratios. So what do you think is causing this disparity? Is this systemic racism, perhaps, um, from redline, redlining practices of the past, uh, discrimination maybe from the current industry, or the standards of the mortgage industry are just not perhaps accommodating to this demographic of home buyers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, extremely important point. And this really gets to kind of what we were talking about at the beginning. We have a lot of people who are mortgage ready, they have great credit scores. And then we see, you know, from research in this Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data that even after controlling for all of these factors, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not getting loans, uh, at the same rates. And when they do, they're more expensive. And like we talked about earlier, folks, uh, in the Latino community, less likely to have higher incomes, uh, or savings as well. So that's incredibly important to, to be able to make that switch. And so, uh, I, I think there's really two things that are going on here. And, and you really touched on one of them. And, and this is, after all, the, the gated communities podcast. And then you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the premise is that some people are unable to live where they want to live based on discrimination and exclusion of racial and ethnic minority groups. And this is basically what redlining, uh, was, uh, you know, starting in the 1930s and, and really on until today. So. I think the first part of the answer is there's no doubt that bias, discrimination, and the history of redlining uh, absolutely are playing a role here. Uh, you know, just as a quick reminder to your listeners, uh, the exclusion of communities of color, including Latinos, uh, for, from federally backed mortgages, it was it was systemic. It was federally supported. It was consistent and consolidated effort to exclude them. Uh, from the wealth voting mechanism of home ownership. This was a federal policy to not let people, uh, not let communities of color be able to build the wealth that they wanted to build. Uh, so I think when you have that type of legacy and you had policies that were so explicit, and there's a lot of fantastic research on this that shows that redlining of yesterday absolutely affects uh, outcomes of today. Uh, and even though I don't think redlining explicitly happens at the same level that it used to, uh, it, it definitely still does. And um, the Department of Justice actually has uh, actively been pursuing redlining cases in 2021 and 2022. They launched an initiative uh, that was focused on this. And over the last two years, they have uh, secured 10 settlement agreements uh, with lending institutions around the country. And there's about two dozen of them that are still active. Uh, so 
you know, part one of the answer is bias and discrimination uh, from a racial perspective is uh, unfortunately still exists. Modern redlining is is definitely real, and and that's part of the part of the equation here. Um, and then I also think there are some other factors at play that are uh, oftentimes a bit more out of sight, but if not uh, more important, at least equally important to, to improving outcomes for Latinos in the future. And that one, the, those second factors are really uh, the idea that the underlying data that is most commonly used in credit assessments doesn't fully represent the detail and complexity of the Latino community. So it's really recognizing that at a high level, what's happening is that a mortgage lenders, they're, they're working hard to make a holistic assessment on the ability of the borrower to repay a, spe to repay a specific loan. Um, and then they do this, right, based on the information that they have. They, the, the borrower is going to send them a lot of information and data like income, their debt to income ratio. They're going to look at a specific house. They're going to think about the size of a loan. And then from there, they either approve or deny. And then they set the appropriate price of the loan, which is the interest rate. But it's the data, it's that underlying data that I think uh, is what we're seeing the disparities in outcomes at a macro level. So at a macro level, if the underlying data points are biased, even a little bit over the course of millions of transactions, we're going to see fundamentally different uh, and statistically significant results in uh, lending outputs and approvals and denials for uh, a community if, if that data happens to be biased. So I think the question is, do, do we think that's the case? And I think from this research uh, on the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data, there's good reason to think that... Um, there are specific unobserved credit quality factors that are not accurately re reflected consistently in common credit risk assessments. So uh, these factors, uh, what they are is aspects of a fi borrower's financial profile uh, that aren't being fully captured in that credit score in that debt to income ratio. Um, and I want to draw uh, attention to two examples for the Latino community. And I think, you know, as a through line here, more research is needed on the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data. More research is needed, you know, at a local level. Uh, if you're in the mortgage industry, look hard at your data and think about, you know, what opportunities am I potentially missing? But two factors around the unobserved credit qualities uh, factors that, that I think uh, have are generally not fully incorporated for the Latino community is the nature of the borrower's income. So we, uh, the, the Latino community is more likely to be entrepreneurial. So on average, there's more small business owners and entrepreneurs in that community. And that sort of necessarily means that they have a different uh, salary stream, a different revenue stream than somebody who is salaried. Uh, which is more common uh, in the white community. So if you have your own business, your revenue stream may not be uh, extremely clear, or you might have projections to make more money over the next year. Um, that lack of a W-2, uh, you know, there's a good reason to think that it's not being fully incorporated in the underlying credit risk assessment models. Uh, another example is household composition. So understanding that the Latino community is more likely to live in multi-generational households, more likely to have both children and grandparents in the home, possibly other uh, non-married income earners as well. Uh, and so if you're using your standard credit scores and your standard debt to income ratios, but you have a family who may be a small business owner, uh, as well as have some other income earners in the home, that credit profile uh, is not going to look the same as uh, somebody else. And I think these unobserved credit quality factors, while on paper they might have the same credit score, those actual uh, factors are going to be a little bit different. And so, uh, you know, when thinking about the mortgage industry, 
Uh, I think this is, again, an area of opportunity to say what is actually happening in my community, who are the folks I'm actually serving, and really trying to interrogate those credit risk assessment models and those unobserved quality, risk quality factors. If you're putting uh, bias data into a system, you're likely to get bias results out of a system. And I think that's a large part of what's happening here. So it's some combination of, unfortunately, there still is explicit bias and redlining. Uh, you know, folks should should be aware that that exists uh, and and be and have eyes wide open about that. But also on the other side, you know, what is the data we're actually using to think about how to uh, assess the credit risk of these Latino families? So you mentioned before that Latino homebuyers, like everyone else, need more inventory to come to the market. Uh, but an Urban Institute study makes a point in stating that the industry needs to not only build more housing but build to fit the lifestyles of new homeowners. And some dedicated listeners may know that not all Latino and Hispanic communities share the same lifestyle. So I'll ask more generally, um, do many of those communities lean towards multi-generational living? If so, what type of properties are conducive to that type of lifestyle? Yeah, uh, and, and you you hit the nail on the head that there is really no one size fits all approach here and that Latinos are a diverse demographic. And importantly, they're also uh, geographically diverse and culturally diverse. And so uh, I think there's a couple takeaways that are, are fairly common uh, that are based on our, our research and our conversations with community members around multi-generational households and then more broadly to the to, to Latino communities. Uh, so the first, uh, I think this pairs well with conversations around policy and the, and the barriers of lack of starter homes is around uh, just uh, policies that support uh, the the um, construction of accessory dwelling units uh, and or casitas or granny flats. And so when you have a multi-generational household, you're more likely to have children or grandparents uh, that are on the same plot of land, right? Maybe in the same house. But I think an ideal situation is that people want to live uh, where they want to live in the neighborhood that they want, but also be close uh, to their family members. And allowing for this sort of gentle infill housing around accessory dwelling units can really provide a lot of standalone extra living spaces that are both on the proximate, uh, on the property and proximate, but also separate from the main house. So it sort of uh, provides this opportunity for families to stay together, uh, to build wealth on their own land, uh, to be able to use that accessory dwelling unit uh, to meet the specific needs of their families. Uh, an important piece of this, I think, is saying that includes manufactured housing and mod modular housing as well. So if you have a plot of land and you have a backyard where you could put an accessory dwelling unit, having good manufactured or modular housing options uh, is a way that can be both safer uh, and has a certain quality. So not, you know, it's, it's great if you want to work and, and have somebody design one specifically for your home, but there's a lot of opportunities out there to just have uh, a really quality accessory dwelling unit that's been prefabricated elsewhere uh, to, to help, you know, increase the, the value of your land and meet the needs of your specific family. So I think that's one area in particular uh, that's exciting and that can specifically meet the needs of multi-generational households. Uh, the second one sort of on that, uh, on the, the specific needs for Latinos is, again, back to what I said earlier about that need for starter homes. And so a lot of homes that are built today uh, are, if they're single family, tend to be extremely large. Uh, so not only do you need starter homes that uh, are 
not not as big, right? So they're more affordable for uh, the Latino families aging into that market. Um, but also here we can see possibilities for condominiums. Uh, so people are looking for their first starter home, multifamily developments that allow for condominiums uh, can be a fantastic option for people. It allows them to maybe be close to a single family neighborhood where other family members live, or it can be a cheaper option in an urban area that can be quite expensive. Um, so I think those are those are two areas in particular. And then other uh, sort of lifestyle preferences for the Latino community that really stand out are uh, a third one is robust language access environments. So if we're thinking about building new homes, if we're thinking about um, accessory dwelling unit manufacturers, making sure that there is a language access component to the work that you are doing. Uh, so there's a lot of Latinos who uh, speak English as a first language, but there is absolutely a community that uh, speaks English as a second language and benefits from that uh, interaction and confidence of somebody who is willing to put in the extra work uh, to meet their needs on the language access side of things. Uh, and then a fourth one are, is I would call it like geographic specific needs and or climate aware housing. Uh, so when we're thinking about the needs of the Latino community with respect to housing typologies, a uh, couple examples come to mind. So in Miami and Florida, there's a lot of Latino families. There is also a lot of hurricanes and tropical storms and potential for natural disaster. And having new constructions be both strong and resilient constructions are going to be extremely important uh, in those communities for, for decades to come. Uh, another example is Phoenix. Uh, you know, Phoenix is is always hot in the summer, but it's only getting hotter in the summer. And, you know, air conditioning is no longer an option. It's absolutely needed, but air conditioning can be quite expensive. So and this applies to a lot of regions in the south and southwest of the United States is are new housing units energy efficient. Uh, you know, when a Latino family is buying a home, they're putting money for a down payment, they're using the savings they have. Uh, it's really important to be able to have energy efficient. Uh, homes that are cost effective over the long run. And I think this is, is something that folks are really looking for. Uh, so those are a few, uh, I think, lifestyle specific uh, housing typologies that can really benefit the Latino community. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a point home builders need to consider. If we expect, you know, 20% of first time buyers to be Hispanic in 2040, and Unidos wants 4 million new Latino homeowners by 2030, I would think we would, you know, need to start construction on this now so there's inventory for them later. If we're struggling to build our basic, you know, cookie cutter homes, it sounds like we currently aren't building enough homes to fit that type of lifestyle either. Yes, I, I think so, uh, that they, they do need to focus on, on building more homes. And to answer your previous question, no, not enough homes are being built to meet the needs of the Latino community. And frankly, not enough homes are being built to meet the needs of any community right now. Uh, I think Freddie Mac puts the home homeownerships, uh, the home supply gap at somewhere around 4 million units, the National Association of Realtors somewhere around 7 million units. So I think any way you look at it right now, there are simply not enough homes, uh, either for Latinos or for other members of the community. But again, as we see that demographic change, this is really going to impact those younger Latino families. But your organization has a policy agenda laid out to support and encourage the growth of more multi-generational housing supplies. So I'll let you explain what that plan is and maybe your also your agenda for addressing those other barriers we previously discussed. Yeah, absolutely. So housing supply is definitely a big, a big component of that. But I would say the way we formulated our housing agenda is uh, to support every aspect of the homeownership life cycle. 
so really, that really means starting at the beginning with today's renters. So we know that a lot of today's renters want to become tomorrow's homeowners, uh, but it can be a complex, it can be an intimidating process. Uh, so one of the areas that we support in particular, and I've, I've touched on this a little bit, is housing counseling networks. So the Unidos U.S. Wealth and Housing Alliance is around 50 housing counseling agencies that have culturally specific services for the Latino community. This is a HUD-funded housing counseling network, and most states have HUD-funded housing counseling networks. Uh, and we are strong supporters of strengthening uh, these networks. They provide uh, a hub of knowledge uh, and security uh, when thinking about making these big life decisions uh, in the community. And so as we think about, you know, how does the mortgage industry get involved? How do we connect with community? The housing counseling agencies uh, can absolutely be a part of that. Uh, so understanding uh, the work that they're doing is really important. And then on the advocacy side, we're uh, continuing to push Congress and the administration to say, hey, there's more money needed in the community for housing counseling uh, and, and absolutely specific and uh, culturally specific housing counseling as well. Um, so that's that's one of the areas. And then uh, the second one is not only those uh, helping home buyers become renters, uh, but also thinking about uh, improving access to credit. Uh, and so. Uh, one of these areas that we're interested in supporting and that we've done some advocacy on are special purpose credit programs. Uh, and you had, uh, you know, a wonderful podcast with, with Michael from TD Amer uh, Bank, uh, not too long ago, really getting into the weeds of the special purpose credit programs. And this is something that we see as absolutely uh, a mechanism to help meet the needs of the Latino community on the mortgage market. So very supportive of efforts out there around uh, special purpose credit programs. On more of the federal side of the work, we, uh, federal and state side of the work, we are interested in advocating for tax advantage savings accounts for first time home buyers. So understanding that there's a lot of places in the tax code uh, that benefit a lot of different groups of people. We believe that first time home buyers should be some of the beneficiaries as well. Uh, so this could take a couple of forms. This could be allowing for uh, home owner, home ownership expenses like down payments uh, to be uh, an acceptable expense in like a 401k program or an education 529 account. Uh, so those are sort of the broad ideas. How do we leverage the tax system to be able to help first time home buyers? Like we said at the beginning, there's 8 million mortgage ready Latinos, but that primary barrier is getting over the hump of that down payment. We think some tax advantage savings accounts could go a long way to do this. We're very interested about other activities uh, that are happening locally or at the state level uh, that we can help promote and, and support moving forward. Um, another area is around down payment assistance. So we've talked uh, a little bit about this being a specific barrier, but there are a lot of great down payment assistance programs, uh, certainly at the state level. And we're advocating for those at the national level uh, and trying to think both creatively and innovatively about what programs can actually meet the needs of the community. California has a great program. It's called the California Dream for All program. It's a shared equity, uh, a shared loan appreciation program where they're trying to address one of the main downsides of, of down payment assistance, which is it's very expensive. But their shared equity uh, program is that over the course of the maturation of a loan, of an additional loan to cover the down payment uh, for the home buyer, the home buyer does not pay any interest and does not actually make any payments on that loan until they actually sell their house. And upon selling their house, then the loan term comes due and they take part of the equity goes back to the state and feeds into the program. So the idea is that it would take one of the main issues with down payment assistance programs is that they're very expensive and, and try to offset some of those costs. Um, 
a couple other areas where we're working in and uh, you know excited to promote uh, are around uh, addressing appraisal bias. And again, I know this is a topic you've, you've covered on the podcast. Uh, this is very complicated uh, and it's very difficult to make inroads uh, in, in, a, in an implementation perspective as well as a policy perspective, but it is incredibly important. If we're thinking about home ownership as a wealth building mechanism, we know that systematically both African-American and Latino communities have had that wealth eroded uh, because of uh, appraisal bias. And so it's we are working with our housing counseling agencies. We're working on sharing uh, the word about the, the new FHA uh, reconsideration of value process and that there are mechanisms out there to start to have the conversations about getting an appropriate valuation on the house. Uh, so this is an area that we are, we are very interested in. Uh, and then lastly, just to touch on, we talked a little bit about housing supply policies uh, around like accessory dwelling units, but uh, we are supportive, especially at a state level of what I like to call a housing supply recipe, which is taking certain ingredients like accessory dwelling units, for example, uh, that same ingredient may be available in California and Florida and Montana even, uh, but what you're getting out of that recipe is uh, a little bit different in each place based on the locality. So some of the other ingredients to that housing supply recipe besides accessory dwelling units are allowing manufactured housing or limited parking, limiting parking mandates. So saying, you know, you, you can't just say you need five cars for every new housing space uh, and uh, limiting uh, uh, lot size uh, minimum. So saying that lot size can either be divided up into smaller lots, or you can't say that like a lot has to just be an acre. So sort of these gentle infill, uh, gentle density uh, housing policy ideas that can look different in different regions, but all are sort of amounting to uh, more housing production over the course of time. Uh, so that's kind of the, just a quick run on the different policy areas that we're focused on, but it ultimately uh, ends with sort of supporting those first time home buyers with their education and then ends with uh, helping that uh, transition and wealth generation uh, at, at, at the end. Wonderful. And I want to bring up, I guess, you know, this is a bonus question that just may be worth pondering, worth pondering for the audience. An interesting study from the Brookings Institute says Hispanic applicants are more likely to choose fintech mortgage lenders rather than an in-person experience, with nearly 50% believing they'll have a greater chance of being approved and funded. And one study shows that fintechs do have a lower disparity in loan approval rates between white and Latinos, making this, you know, a more fair process. Is this signaling a lack of trust um, Hispanic borrowers have with the industry? And are Latino borrowers preventing themselves from being financially educated by choosing an online experience rather than in person? Uh, that's such a such an interesting question. Uh, I, I think this is definitely an area that I am interested in doing some more research and learning in as sort of uh, fintechs continue to take off, as artificial intelligence continues to be woven into uh, the mortgage experience. Uh, but what I think you say, what, what you say, I think has a lot of merit to it. And so understanding, we talked a little bit about this, the impacts of redlining, uh, the historical redlining on today. I think it's hard to ignore the fact that there uh, can easily be a lack of trust here. Uh, and I think there, you know, that lack of trust, uh, does it carry over and does it affect the products that people are looking for today? I think that's certainly possible. Uh, and there would be a good basis uh, for some of that lack of trust. 
So I think that's one component of it. Uh, and I think that makes sense. And then the other side of it is, you know, I think as you set up in your question, you said some of them are able, are easier, they, they perceive it to be easier to get approved. And so I think the other side of this is, is it a lack of trust or uh, are they being offered a better product that is meeting their needs? And so I think uh, when thinking about kind of what this means for the mortgage industry, I don't, I think it can be, you know, maybe a both and uh, that's, you know, does it matter whether you're building trust in the community and does it matter uh, how you're presenting yourself and your products? A hundred percent it matters. And as we think about this opportunity moving forward, I don't think it's that fintechs are necessarily better because they're online or uh, traditional um, mortgages are better because they're in person. I think it can be a mix of the both. And so I would encourage uh, fintech lenders to have uh, good, solid educational materials in both English and Spanish uh, to meet the educational needs of the community that's coming to them. Uh, and I would encourage traditional uh, mortgage lenders to be able to reach out to community and meet the needs and build that trust and recognize that there, there could be some historical context and precedent there where folks don't trust as much as they should. A big part of that is understanding who, who your market is and, you know, bringing in that language access component as well. So uh, to me, I think it's a little bit of a both and, uh, but the, the one through line there is building trust with the community moving forward is very important. I think you made some great points. And, and while we're on the topic of trust, I usually ask this question to guests who have expertise on particular demographics of home buyers. You know, what can the industry do to build trust with the Latino population? Currently, you know, we lack the diversity in the mortgage industry, and it's hard to imagine that we can have 70% of the industry be Latino to match the percentage of Latino buyers in 2040. So even with white, Asian, Black, and Ellos of other ethnicities, how can they earn the trust of these borrowers? Uh, that's such a great question. Such an important question, uh, because I think uh, the success in, in, in the mortgage market moving forward, the success in the home ownership market at large, it, it's contingent on people saying, you know, how can I how can I connect with the community? And, uh, you know, certainly race is a factor in these conversations, uh, but it doesn't have to be a barrier. And I think folks who are genuine about connecting with community uh, can absolutely make inroads. And so. Uh, I think there's a couple of things that stand out for me. One is just uh, not surprising here, but leading with a commitment to integrity and ethics. Uh, at the end of the day, people who are looking to buy a home and have a relationship with the mortgage industry, they, they want to get a mortgage that works for them, uh, that is safe, that is affordable, that is transparent, that is clear, uh, and that is meeting their specific needs. And so I think, uh, you know, just to start with, uh, that is that is the baseline there is coming to this with integrity and ethics and transparency and saying, hey, this is what I'm bringing to the table. This is what I'm offering you, uh, you know, and come come and work with me, come and do business with me. Uh, so that's sort of just on that product side, which I think uh, is, is obvious to some degree, but also, you know, there's a history of that not being the case. Uh, so being upfront about that and being upfront about what you're offering. The second thing I would say is around that education component. Uh, so. You know, uh, not everybody can speak Spanish and that's okay, but generally everybody can get something translated. Uh, and many people uh, are able to meet both ways, right? Sort of in the middle of being, of uh, speaking Spanish and English. So having some language access to component is really important, but also equally as important as having quality education materials. So knowing that when a first time home buyer is walking into your doors, uh, whether or not they're Latino, having educational materials that are clear, that are concise, that are to the point and are able to address the questions, it's just going to be paramount to, to building trust with that community. 
And then taking that next step where you can around language access, I think is a, is a great signal as well. Uh, and then the last one is around community partnership. Um, so there are uh, Latino specific community development finance institutions. There are nonprofit housing counseling organizations. Uh, there are other, uh, you know, business groups and boards. Uh, there are, uh, industry groups that are specific to Latinos. There are a lot of opportunities for outreach and engagement. Uh, and I think, you know, approaching those opportunities with a bit of humility and saying, I'm going to go in, I'm going to learn and I'm going to listen and see what it is that I can hear in, about this community that then I can help, you know, meet their needs over the long run. So I think those are a few ideas that, you know, if you're someone who's feeling on the outside, looking at the demographic shifts going forward, uh, it's, it's not destiny. And I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, to, to be involved in, in the conversation moving forward. Definitely. And any LOs, appraisers, lenders out there that want to learn more about connecting with Latino borrowers and Unidos' um, mission to increase home ownership, where should they go? Yeah, absolutely. So we, like I said at the beginning, we're engaged in this home ownership means equity initiative, home. Uh, and so you can check out more information at Unidos US. You can Google Unidos US and home and you're going to find a lot of information about it. And I would really just end with uh, an invitation and a call to action. I think uh, both for the industry uh, and for a group like Unidos US, we have the same goal in mind. We are looking for young Latino uh, home buyers to get their first home, to move into the market, to build intergenerational wealth, uh, and to, to really be able to live out the American dream. Uh, and so I think... Uh, you know, I hope you're able to, to reach out, to look at the information that we have and support efforts uh, around the country to, uh, you know, be able to move first time home buyers into home ownership. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to educate us on Latino home buyers, what they need, what their challenges are, and how we as an industry can help them. It's been very insightful, and I can't wait to see this mission succeed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Gated Communities, hosted by me, Katie Jensen, for National Mortgage Professional. You can find more episodes at nationalmortgageprofessional.com and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe so you can get future episodes and be sure to rate and review us if you haven't already. This podcast is copyrighted by American Business Media.